0: I believe I finished chapter 16 last time, and it ended with the thought that God is going to do whatever is necessary, and he's already laid out for us what is necessary, in order for everyone to know who God is. There's a lot of confusion about whether there is a God, who God is, the nature of God, why he's not doing what people wish he were doing. But when it all boils down to it, it's not that God is not doing what we wish he would do. We are not doing what God wants us to do. He is the one who made the rules. We don't make the rules. But mankind has been changing the rules to his own satisfaction for 6,000 years. And God said, no, we will play by my rules. So what he is going to do is going to show that he is indeed in charge, that there is only one God, he is very much alive, and his way of life is the only way of life that will work. Now, he could have instituted this a long time ago and saved a great deal of grief, But part of the lesson is that we have 6,000 years of man's experience to prove, once and for all, that our way will not work. God is going to let this thing go to the point that the bombs will be in the air, so to speak, to destroy all humankind from off the face of the earth. Then he will intervene. And... Stop it before all flesh is destroyed. He has to let us go that far so that we have no excuse. We won't be able to say our military would have saved us, science would have saved us, or any other idol we must put ahead of God and say it would have solved our problems. Our problems are quickly becoming insoluble. America's problems are quickly becoming insoluble. We've already seen the problems in the church reach the point where no one can solve them. It will take the hand of God, showing his almighty power to even save a remnant out of the church. It will be of his doing, not of any man's doing. He will use men to help, but it's going to become quite clear in the future, based on all the prophecies, And in fact, all the Bible, that God will intervene, and he will show the church who he is and where he is working. He's promised he will do that, and in turn, he will then show the world who he is and where he is working, and they shall know that my name is the eternal, the everlasting, the one who always has been and always will be, and everything else rises or falls, depending upon what he decides. That's just the way it is. So there's a great summary statement in Jeremiah 16, 20 and 21 to show God's purpose and design and what he is allowing, letting man pretty much go his own way, and Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air and the present ruler of this world, has concocted a society that is diametrically opposed to God's ways. God is going to change that and show them this will not work. All doubt will be removed as to who is the sovereign of the universe. Now let's pick it up then in chapter 17. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. Two very, very hard substances. In other words, you can't erase it, you can't blot it out. God has written it, and while we have perpetrated our sin to the point that it is undeniable. It can't be erased. It's just there. It's graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altars. So our sin is inside us. That's why we have to repent of how we think and what we allow to go through our minds. Because it isn't just something external that might happen now and then. The way of thinking is bad. And therefore it is graven in our heart and upon the horns of your altars. So he's saying not only is the sin within us, but it is also within our religion. I think this says a great deal about the condition of the church and ultimately of all Israel and the world. But our religion is in vain, because even though we give lip service, so often we don't live up to it. If you brand an animal, you stamp your brand on its hide, and it's not removable. Except unless you take the hide and the meat, some of it with it, to get rid of it. Like it's tattooed on us, in our hearts and in our religion. So, what's going on in our hearts and minds isn't solving our problems, nor is religion solving the problems. The sin has to be removed. We have to learn to walk in the ways that we should go. He tells us in Isaiah 58 that if we fast with the right reasons and purposes in mind to remove the bonds of iniquity, that we will be called called the repairers of the breach and the restorer of paths to walk in. Now we, brethren, each and every one of us, must be finding the proper paths to walk in and restoring those. Because something obviously has gone really, really wrong, or we would not be in the condition we were in, that we are in, excuse me. We must find and restore correct paths to walk the way God wants us to walk. Wouldn't it be nice someday for God to point to us and say, those are the repairs of the breach. And the restorers of paths to walk in. Now since so much has gone wrong inside us and inside God's religion even, not just this world's religions but even God's people, what we are bringing before God and as we approach the altar there are things amiss. Now my job is to do everything I can to examine God's Word and to show you the right paths to walk in. Mr. Armstrong used a slightly different analogy. He said, we're off the track. We need to get back on the track. Now, if you want to use the train analogy, that's fine. But off the path is the same thing. When you're off in the boonies out in the weeds and can't find the proper trail or path. Well, that's what we have to do. Find out what's wrong, what went wrong, and fix it in our individual lives and therefore as a body. Verse 2, While their children remember their altars and their groves by the green trees upon the high hills, O my mountain in the field, I will give your substance and all your treasures to the spoil, and your high places for sin throughout all your borders. It's hard for our children Not to be impressed by the things in the world. For people who are old and have grown children, and this is happening in the church as well, our children are out remembering not what we taught them right now about God, but they're looking to the things out in the world. And for the most part, they're not staying with the church. There are a few shining examples of those who will seek God in these times, but for the most part, God is not calling those children and they're remembering the things they like to do. Their altars. (coughs) But God says he's going to take it away. Verse 4, And you, even yourself, not just your children, he says, even yourself, shall discontinue from your heritage that I gave you. Now, haven't we already discontinued from the heritage he gave us religiously and in the church? He called us out of this world. He told us to be transformed. We began following many of God's ways, not understanding everything, but the best we understood, we were following to a point. And then somehow we cooled down. Somehow we weren't turning to God or living our lives With our whole heart toward God. So he says he's going to give our substance and all our treasures to the spoil. The things he promised us because of Abraham's obedience are all going to be taken away, and the things that he taught Herbert Armstrong that he followed and taught us are being taken away as well. Your high places for sin throughout all your borders are going to be removed. you will discontinue from your heritage. And I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you know not. Look around. How many enemies does America have today? And we'll serve them in places that we know not. Strange, foreign to us. Taken in other places. For you have kindled a fire in my anger, which shall burn forever. He says, I'm not going to get over this until something is done about it, obviously. That doesn't mean that he's going to be angry forevermore. What it means is, as long as these conditions exist, my anger will burn. So nothing is going to change until we change. The ball is in our court, brethren. Thus says the eternal, verse 5, Cursed be the man that trusts in man, and makes flesh, His strength or his arm, his protection, and whose heart departs from the eternal. He pronounces here through Jeremiah a curse on any who will trust in man. We say in our nation we trust in God. In God we trust. But do we? No, we trust in our military. We trust in our scientists. We look to our military for protection. We don't look to God for protection. God says then He is going to remove our military. He says back in chapter 15, verse 12, Shall iron break the northern iron and the steel? Is the iron we have, the military ability, strong enough to break the northern iron and steel? No. God is going to make sure that our military cannot Protect us because we trust in that, not in God. We trust in man for healing. We're not willing to turn loose and trust God with our whole heart. And we are still sick. It's up to us. We have to make the changes. God isn't going to. He doesn't need to change. He's perfect, He does everything right. We're the ones who do things wrong. Now, if we want to get on the right path, we have to face these issues. That's all there is to it. Maybe we get tired of hearing, repent, change, grow. But, you know, that's what it's all about. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. The last thing he tells us in Revelation repent, overcome, and don't be a liar and a adulterer, a thief, and so on and so forth. A drunkard, whatever. Because if you're going to be saved out of this, you have to change. If he makes flesh what he depends upon. God says he will curse him. So if we look to other solutions rather than to God, then our heart departs from God and turns to those things that we trust in. That's what the world does. They trust in their scientists. They trust in their doctors. They trust in their lawyers. They trust in their military. They trust in their politicians. They'll all be taken away. There will be no choice. You will have to obey God or else. For he shall be like the heat in the desert and shall not see when good comes. The man who trusts in man is going to be like a bird or an animal out in the desert, and when God blesses, he won't even see it or recognize it because he's so far removed from that blessing. But shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, and a salt land, and not inhabited. We are not willing and able to have faith in, trust in God, and depend upon him for everything, then God says we'll be removed to that kind of place and we won't see the good when it comes. We'll be taken into captivity. Now, ironically, I think it's interesting that God tells us to leave the cities, go dwell in the wilderness, the field, the open spaces, uh, and he talks about desert and wilderness and mountainous areas. And he says, go there on faith, And there I will bless you. But if we do not turn to God, when he does bless in a desert place, those who will not obey God will miss it, because they will be sent to a different place to be slaves. Verse 7, Blessed is the man that trusts in the eternal, and whose hope the Lord is. That puts it pretty clearly. Anyone who depends upon the ways of man is going to have problems and be cursed. And he who is willing to trust in God, who puts his hope in God, he shall be as a tree planted by the waters and that spreads out her roots by the river and shall not see when heat comes, but her leaf shall be green and shall not not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. In other words... Blessing, plenty, water, crops, we've read about these things many places in the Bible now it says that God is going to restore health, wealth, strength, blessing to those who will trust and obey him. But you've got to go through the bad times before the good times come. The bad times of repentance, the bad times of having to change. And we resist change. We don't like to change. We hate change. We We like the way things have been. But brethren, things aren't the way they have been in the church, nor in the nation. The church is already almost down, and the nation is headed down the same slippery slope. And the only thing, ultimately, that will count is if we trust God. And he promises blessing If that happens. But we have a problem. And a verse that is probably in all of our memory banks. Verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You see, God says don't trust in man. Trust and hope in God. But we have a mind that is deceitful and desperately wicked. We will deceive ourselves and we do tend toward wickedness. You see, Paul calls sin temporary pleasure. Sin, believe it or not, can be a lot of fun in the short term. But in the long term, sin brings damage and death. If you break the laws of God and stray from the paths of the way he says to live, it might seem like an emotional high at first, but what it does ultimately is destroy your emotions, it destroys your health, it destroys your mind. And you wind up broken and beaten by the penalty of sin, and ultimately you die. That's just the way sin works. People justify it by saying, well, this isn't hurting anybody. It's fun. They don't know that they're hurting themselves. That they will destroy their emotions, their true feelings, the right way of thinking, because sin does that. You can't do others wrong and do yourself wrong without doing damage. Whether it's drugs, alcohol, sex, lying, stealing, cheating for wealth, and the things that people like. It even says the fornication that you sin against your own body. You see, it says all other sins are without and the penalty comes from somewhere else. But when it's, you're involved in sex sins, You're destroying your own emotions, your own feelings, your own faithfulness, your own loyalty, and so on. And those things are things that will never, ever go away completely, unless until you become God. Because you damage your own emotions by so doing. But we can deceive ourselves so easily into thinking what we want to do is the thing to do. But it's not. It's, it's, a, it's sort of like a fishing lure in front of a fish. It's bright, it's glittering, and it's moving through the water. And the fish says, boy, that looks good. And he doesn't know that if he reaches up and snaps that lure, that it has hooks and bars. He doesn't see that. But you live the way of man, you live the way of Satan, get off the path of God's ways, you're eventually going to have hooks in your mind, in your flesh. But we sure do find ways to do it. To deceive ourselves into thinking we can get away with it, or it won't hurt us. But it will. And if it doesn't hurt you immediately and directly, then you will answer to God someday as well. That's why... In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, Enjoy your strength, young man, but remember, there will come a day of reckoning, and you will deal with God. It's just the way it is. He is capable of blessing beyond comprehension if we will obey him. He is also capable of cursing beyond comprehension if we disobey him. Verse 10, I, the Eternal, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. God knows your mind better than you do. You think you know yourself sometimes pretty well, but God knows you better than you do because he can see through the deceit. He can see through the desire to do wickedness and to think wrong things. He knows it. He could see what was wrong with Job, couldn't he? Now, Job was keeping the rules, keeping the laws. There was no fault there. But Job was very, very self-righteous. He had attitudinal problems. He thought too highly of himself and what he thought he was accomplishing. So God simply removed everything, gave him poor health, removed his wealth, removed his sons and daughters, and gave him great pain, sick Satan on him to do it. Job needed a major attitude adjustment. Sometimes we like to consider ourselves righteous, I guess, and any troubles that come upon us we say, well, kind of like Job, well, never forget But Job had serious attitudinal problems. Serious self-righteousness. By the time the book of Job was over and all of those things had happened, Job's attitude changed a great deal. Suddenly he saw the power, the might, the strength of God, and he himself is very, very small. Obviously he had considered himself pretty righteous if you consider yourself righteous maybe you better read the book of Job with a different attitude than you've had before because God searches the reins and the hearts he tries us and he's going to give us according to our ways according to our fruits he won't be deceived you might kid yourself but you can't kid God he can read your innermost thoughts you can't kid him. As the partridge sits on eggs and hatches them not, so he that gets riches and not by right shall leave them in the midst of his days, and at his end shall be a fool. Chicken, partridge, ant, bird can sit on eggs. I've seen them do it. Maybe they weren't fertile or whatever, but they won't hatch. They can sit on them until they're absolutely rotten and not hatch. Because the ingredients, the hatch eggs, simply somewhere was perverted or misused. It doesn't happen. So, yeah, David looked around and said, the wicked prosper. What's going on here? But that won't last forever. And you can lie, you can cheat, you can steal, and you might amass riches or wealth, but it'll be taken away, and you'll be a fool when it's all over. You've got to do it God's way. Be honest, be fair, but just wait and measure. Interesting thought included in verse 12. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. It isn't in man's government. It isn't in church government in that sense. From the very beginning, where do we need to look? To God's great throne. That's where all the answers are. There are no answers anywhere else. I think it's ironic and perhaps interesting that there is a place called Zion that has what is called the great white throne in it, and I think that it is to become a sanctuary for some of God's people. Now, it is only symbolic, however, of his throne in heaven, which is the place of our sanctuary, ultimately. Even a place of safety on this earth, if we're still physical, is only good for how long? Until you get old and die. Or die from your life truncated by some other reason. good friend of ours was killed just this past week in a car accident almost instantaneously. Fine person. Gone. We know when we're going to die, do we? We have no idea. It can happen so suddenly. We'd better be looking to God's glorious high throne. There are places on this earth that may be symbolic of that, but they're only so good for so long in symbolism, because ultimately he is our sanctuary. And this is in the context, then, of not looking to man and his protection and answers, but to God. Sorry, that's just the way it is, brethren. We may have our pet things in this world that we look to, but you're barking up the wrong tree if you do that. Instead, we need to replace that trust that we have placed in other areas with trust in God. He says He will protect us. He says He will heal us. He says He will provide food and shelter for us. He says he will keep us from the great tribulation if we are accounted worthy. So, anything you look to man for has to ultimately be taken away because that becomes an idol. Isn't that simple and plain? Anything we put ahead of what God says he is becomes an idol. And all those idols have to be taken away. If we will not take them away from ourselves... God will take them away from us. And it's going to hurt a whole lot more if you wait for God to do it than if you do it yourself. We have a period of time here, I know not how long, in which we can make the changes ourselves. If we don't make them and begin to truly trust in God with our whole heart, mind, body, and soul and we trust in this world and its ways and its things, God will consign us to the world and what will happen to the world. That's just the way it is, bottom line. Verse 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake you shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth their graves, their deaths, Because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. God is the one who can heal. Who can heal the dead sea. Who can heal all the waters of the earth. And who can provide the right way to live. And then Jeremiah prays, Heal me, O Eternal, and I shall be healed. There are those in the church today who would have us go to this world to be healed. God is the ultimate healer. And that is one of his titles. And he is a very jealous God. If we go to the scientists, the so-called healers of this world, then we are removing ourselves from God. Now, is it that God cannot heal? Is his arm shortened? We read not long ago back here about is there a bomb in Gilead? Why aren't we healed? We aren't healed because we haven't sought God with our whole heart yet. We haven't made the changes we need to make yet. That day will come. But if we continue to trust in medical science or any kind of thing that takes over God's prerogatives, His titles, Ultimately, we're going to be in serious trouble. He's provided those things in nature that we need to sustain good health. He's given us herbs. He's given us vegetables. He's given us things that we can use. But even they can become an idol if we use them in a wrong way. They're not by nature that. But mankind seems to be able to turn anything into something that comes between him and God. I personally would rather, if I were to become uh, terminal for some reason, with some sickness, I would rather be repenting and trusting God and even die in the flesh than to go to those in this world who claim they are healers too. Some do, some don't. Claim that. But they put themselves in the position of doing that. I want my life to be an eternal life. Not just a physical life here for X number of years. What difference does it make whether I live 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 80, 100, 120 years on this earth? What difference does it make? It's just over and gone like a vapor whereas grass that withers we cling to it well what difference does it make really the question is am I going to live eternally and will I put this body ahead of the spirit body that I've been promised if I do what I should do our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked and we will do almost anything to preserve this flesh But Christ says, no, fear me who can kill both body and soul, not men who can destroy our bodies. What has science brought us, brethren? Science has brought us epidemics of heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and now avian flu and AIDS. In anything almost you want to name, many of those things, some of those diseases are even concocted by man, so that we can reduce the population of earth to a sustainable level. They're doing it, some of it, on purpose, to kill us. You're going to look at science to save you? They brought us white flour. They brought us white sugar. They brought us chemicals in our diets that are killing us. We're a sick nation. I mentioned in the announcement, just read, that the bleach they use to bleach white flour causes the pancreas to shut down, and is a strong contributing factor to diabetes in our society today. So sugar and refined flour are both culprits behind the terrible sickness that is ripping our nation. I look out here at a small group, and there aren't one, but quite a few, with diabetes and other problems. Mankind and his science isn't going to save us. We're going to look to that or we're going to look to God and to those things that are natural that he has made. Heal me, O eternal, and I shall be saved. Save me and I shall be saved. For you are my praise. He's the one we look to. You no, know, God could have saved that person who died this last week in a car accident. Could have baptized, member of God's church, fine person, nice guy, I think honest, basically true to God. God passed on that and allowed him to die. He could do the same with us, or he can save us. Maybe he was ready and you and I are not. It's the reason God hasn't let us die. I've had plenty of chances to die. Plenty of opportunities, many of which I've created myself. But I guess, like the old song says, if the good die young, I'm going to live forever. Or, I'm going to live forever if the good die young. That's the way the song went. Maybe God isn't done with us yet, so we're still alive, and some he allows to die because maybe they have reached a point where he could say, Safely, they'll be in my kingdom. I don't know. But I know he has power of life and death. And this life can be truncated very quickly, very suddenly. It doesn't have to be a terminal illness. It can be accident. It's hard to face the fact that you could die. Especially, I guess, when we're young. We have always been, haven't we, in our minds. Can you think of a time when you didn't live? No, you can't. In your consciousness, in your memory, you've always lived. You weren't before that and you have no memory of it. So somehow we think we're here forever. Forever. It's as we get older that we begin to realize the body starts slowing down, things start going wrong, eyes, ears, noses, taste, feel, you know, whatever it might be, uh, that stuff goes away. We're beset by disease, our bones get rotten, and they break easily, and we get stooped over, and all kinds of things happen as we age. And God did that on purpose. You know, people didn't used to do that. They used to live 900,000 years. Then he cut it to 500 and then 250 and finally says you'll live about 70, more or less. He could have made us to live a long time and people have on this earth. But what's the point? He wants us to live long enough to understand that Satan's way is not the good way. To live long enough to understand we need to look to God. Verse 15. Behold, they say to me, where is the word of the eternal? Let it come now. You say all these things, prove them to me. Let it happen now. I can't promise you that. Jeremiah couldn't promise you that. It's promised that it will happen. And when we see the leaves coming on the trees, which we can see in the world today and in the church, we know that it is near even at the door. So it's close. But we want proof right now. Show me now. I don't want to go on being sick. I don't want to go on in my prison condition. I don't want to have my emotional troubles or whatever your troubles are. Mental, physical, spiritual problems. We get tired of dealing with them, living with them. We want relief. Show me now. We are a spoiled, impatient people. We have been used to riding high in America and in the church, for that matter, haven't we? I read an editorial last night in a Bible study out of U.S. News & Law Report where it showed that General Motors is headed downhill and sending 30,000 jobs overseas. And it said the lesson that General Motors and America may have to learn is humility. And that's what God's doing. He's going to humble the church and he's going to humble the nation. It's just the way it's going to happen. But we have been so spoiled by the blessings that God gave this people, this nation, as a result of Abraham's obedience, that we want answers and we want them now. We're a now society. But we have need of patience to wait until God's time comes. Be- or comes because it is a set appointed time. So what does Jeremiah say? He, he introspectively then looks at himself. He says, everybody around me saying, let the word of God, let these things happen now. Then he analyzes himself. He says, as for me, I have not hastened for being a pastor to follow you. I've not run from the job you've given me to do, Jeremiah says. It wasn't pleasant, and he's about to go to jail here shortly after, in the next few chapters ahead. Probably won't get there today. But he said, I I haven't run from what you've saddled me with, the job you've given me to do. Neither have I desired the woeful day. In other words, I haven't had a vengeful attitude. I haven't just wanted all my enemies destroyed. I haven't wanted to see all the peoples of the earth killed. He doesn't want that or didn't want that. I haven't desired the woeful day. You know, he says, you know me, God. You know what my attitudes are. That which came out of my lips was right before you. I've said the things you've told me to say. Done the things you've told me to do. Be not a terror to me. You are my hope in the day of evil. So he said, God, you know I haven't been against others. I've been trying to do what's right. Don't be a terror to me when evil comes. And they were facing, at that time when he wrote this, the advances of Babylon to destroy the nation and to take Jerusalem. So that's the day of evil that he knew was soon to come upon them. And we see evil now about to come upon our nation as it has upon the church. We see, it destroyed. Well, where are we going to look? We're going to look to God, We're going to look to the American military? That's a joke. Those are strong people out there, and they all hate us. They're coming after us. So he he asked for mercy. Verse 18, let them be confounded that persecute me, but let not me be confounded. Let them be confused. Don't let me be confused. There's an awful lot here that I, I think we think about and pray about. There are a lot of confused people around us. We're not confused anymore, are we? We know what's coming. We know what God is doing. The only problem we have at this point is living up to the things God wants us to do. And we pray that we be accounted worthy, whether we're worthy or not. That God will show mercy and forgiveness in spite of our lacks. Let them be dismayed, but let not me be dismayed. Bring upon them the day of evil and destroy them with double destruction. I haven't been vengeful, Father, but protect me and don't be a terror to me. Go ahead and be a terror to those that are sinning. It's inevitable. God in this book through Jeremiah even tells us don't even pray for this people. It's inevitable. Now I don't want to see them killed keenly, painfully by various diseases and the sword and famine and pestilence and starving to death. I don't want to see that. You don't want to see that. The only reason I want to see it happen is so we can get on the other side so that God's blessing of a thousand years of peace can come. And we know that this abasing, this tumbling has to go away, or has to happen in order for sin to go away, and for people to be ready to listen to God. <clears throat> Verse 19, thus says the eternal to me, or thus said the eternal to me, Go and stand in the gate of the children of the people, whereby the kings of Judah come in, and by the which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem. Wherever people pass by, say this to them. Say to them, Hear you the word of the Eternal, you kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem that enter in by these gates. Alright? From the highest people in the nation to the lowest. Everybody that comes in and out of the gates. Thus says the Eternal, Take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day. nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. He reiterates here what he said in Exodus that the... Sabbath is a test commandment. So he brings up the Sabbath as one of the major tests. Ironically, the Sabbath is under attack even within spiritual Israel, within the church of God or that which was the church of God. Many, many, many thousands of people are departing from the Sabbath who are keeping it in the worldwide church of God. Walking away from it. Thinking Sunday's okay or any day's okay. No, God is the one who determines which day is holy. He has determined that the seventh day is the Sabbath. You cannot worship just any day of the week. And you can't worship on Sunday. Or well, you can worship God on any day. Yes, and we should worship God every day. But there is one day that God himself has made holy. It isn't Sunday. It isn't Wednesday or Friday, as the whole Jehovah's Witnesses would have you, or the Muslims to believe. It is the seventh day, which has been called Saturn's Day or Saturday. But the seventh day is it. Neither carry forth the burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, neither do you any work, but hallow you the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. Now in the Sabbath command, he said, Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath, it is the holy day. There is no other day other than annual Sabbaths that are holy. But the Sabbath is holy. Hallow the Sabbath as I commanded your fathers. So New Testament doesn't do away with it. This is an end-time book about the church at the end. It's a prophetic book. And he says the Sabbath is still in effect. But they obeyed not, neither inclined their ear, but made their necks stiff, that they might not hear nor receive instruction. And it shall come to pass, if you diligently hearken to me, says the eternal, to bring in no burden through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day to do no work therein. See, he told you you can work any other day. He didn't hallow any other day. Just the seventh day. Then shall there enter into the gates of this city kings and princes sitting upon the throne of David. Riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes, the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever. But they didn't heed Jeremiah, and that city was taken captive. And they shall come from the cities of Judah, and from the places about Jerusalem, and from the land of Benjamin, and from the plain, and from the mountains, and from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, and meal offerings and incense, and bringing sacrifices of praise unto the house of the Eternal. If you trust in God; He will bless you. If you keep His Sabbath; He will bless you. And people will be thankful and bring gifts into the house of the Lord. But if you will not hearken to me to hallow the Sabbath, or the Sabbath day, and not to bear a burden even entering in at the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then will I kindle a fire in the gates thereof, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. Is there any doubt in our minds what's going to happen to the worldwide church of God? It's going to be destroyed completely. They've departed from God's side. We need to be careful that we not only give it lip service, but that we're very careful in what we do on that day. It is hallowed time. It is holy time. He says we are not to seek our own pleasures or do our work on that day. You know, it had become very common, or fairly common, and worldwide before things started to blow apart, that people would watch TV on the Sabbath. People would go out and eat, commercially, buying and selling on the Sabbath. There are a lot of things that we have lapsed into which are not holy things on the Sabbath day. What is the thing that the beast will put on people that they can't buy and sell unless they keep Sunday? God has told us not to buy and sell on the Sabbath. And yet, even today, there are many people throughout the greater church of God who think nothing of going out on Friday night or on the Sabbath and buy a meal. That's seeking our own pleasures. It isn't necessary. God has given us time before the Sabbath to prepare food. Isn't that principle very obvious in the manna? They weren't to go out and gather on Sabbath. They were to gather a double amount on Friday so that they didn't have to do that or have others do it for them. How do we so easily fall in to doing things that we think are innocuous or deceiving ourselves into thinking that what we might be doing is okay? There are a lot of people in the church today who consider themselves Christian who will sit and watch television for pleasure on God's holy time watch movies watch sitcoms watch sports whatever they choose to watch they're not keeping the Sabbath holy God made it holy and you're defiling it if you do those things we'd better hallow it keep it right Chapter 18, the word which came to Jeremiah from the eternal saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. potter's house is where they made pottery. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he worked to work on the wheels, turning the pottery wheels, and the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. It wasn't turning out the way he wanted. could have been because of the consistency of the clay, the uh, amount of water in it, might have been he just shaped it wrong or whatever. So he made it again another vessel. I've seen potters wad up what they were making on the wheels, wad it up, and start over. It seemed good to the potter to make it. So he was watching this potter and watching him change what he was doing. Then the word of the eternal came to me saying, so you're, you're sitting here, you're observing what this potter is doing. So God can make the lesson come home to him. Word of the Eternal came to me saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter? God is all-powerful. He made the universe. He made all those stars and galaxies and everything that is out there. He made this earth and the sun and the moon and the trees and the birds and the flowers and the dirt and the animals and everything that's here that we find pleasant and enjoyable. But since he made all this, can't he do with it like a potter? Potter's just making a little base. He can change it. He can redo it. God's saying, I can do the same thing, says the eternal. Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. He can do with us whatever he wishes. Vessel of honor, vessel of dishonor, wad us up, throw us away. It's in his hands. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do to them. There is always hope with God. Even though he has pronounced evil on the church and on the nation, He said, if we will change, that evil will not come. Now, we as a church, overall, did not change, and the curse has come. And it did not causeless come. And we are being diminished. But if we repent, and that's an individual thing, and as a body together, And God says he will withdraw that punishment. Now that's what's going to happen to the faithful remnants. They are people who will repent and change no matter how painful it might be and give up things that have become idols to us. And if we'll do that, God will remove that evil, count us worthy to escape these things, and bless us beyond belief, beyond imagination. Verse 10, if it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good, wherewith I said I would benefit then. You see, it's up to us, whether we are blessed or cursed. God has always made that the case with Adam and Eve, with ancient Israel, with modern Israel, and with the church. The decision essentially is ours. Whether we repent and obey God or do not. And he will react accordingly. You repent, he says, I'll bless you. You don't repent, don't obey the good that I said I'd do for you, I won't. And God is no respecter of persons. Verse 11, Now therefore go to, speak to the men of Judah, and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I frame evil against you. So he said, this, this is the way it is right now. Because of the way that you are, the evil fra- is framed, planned, prepared for you. I devise a device against you. Return you now, everyone, from his evil way, and make your ways and your doings good. It's that simple. Choose life, not death. And they said, there is no hope. We can't see that. It's just just hopeless. The whole situation is hopeless. Discouraged. Thinking it won't do any good. Well, now, who are we listening to here? We're listening to God. He says, yes, it will do good. They said there's no hope. But we will walk after our own devices and we will, every one, do the imagination of his evil heart. I will do what I will do. I will be what I will be. You see, the human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So we find all kinds of ways of justifying what we want to do as opposed to what God says to do. We trust in the arm of flesh. We trust in man for solutions, not look to God. He's brought us to the place, brethren, that we are going to ultimately have to look to him for everything. Protection, food, water... Everything that we need to sustain life, we will have to look to God for. We will absolutely be where Christ said we would be, and that is praying for our daily bread. Give us this day the bread we need for today, and the to mouth, depending upon God. And if his protection, his blessing, is then removed from us, we will suffer the fate of the rest of the world. And he says he will purge the rebels from among us. I frame evil against you. And make your way, return everyone from his evil way. Let's see. But they said there's no hope. We'll just do what we want to do. I mean, the die is cast. This is what I am. This is what I'll be. I heard that quote from someone recently put a name in there, but I will do what I will do. Scary. Why not do what God says to do? Verse 13, Therefore thus says the Eternal, Ask you now among the heathen, who has heard such things? The Virgin of Israel hath done a very horrible thing. You see, God equated you and I or well, he equated us to virgins. Paul wrote that he would present the church at Corinth as chaste virgins before Christ. Now, the church at Corinth was as morally evil as any society that existed on the earth in that day. And here these people were coming out of that society and had been involved in those sins, (coughs) and yet once their sins were washed away in the blood of Christ, they were spiritually accounted as virgins. Not physically. That penalty would remain with them, the sins that they had committed, but spiritually they were reckoned as virgins. And God reckoned us the same way because we are part of the first fruits just as those people were. Once we repented, God removed our sins and we were accounted as spiritual virgins. It even says of the ten virgins that they all slumbered and slept. So the entire church went to sleep. (laughs) And the Virgin of Israel has done a very horrible thing. We put other things ahead of God and became lukewarm. Will a man leave the snow of Lebanon which comes from the rock of the field? In other words, it snows up in Lebanon in the mountains above Israel. And then that water sinks into the ground and comes out at the base of the mountain As a spring through the rocks. Would you leave that and go out where there are no springs of water? (laughs) Or shall the cold flowing waters that come from another place be forsaken? Have a creek or a river that runs by and you would leave it and go out where there's no water? The reasoning here is why would you leave God? He's the source of living waters. Why would you leave physical waters and blessing? Why would you leave spiritual blessing? Because my people have forgotten me. They have burned incense to vanity. Vanity is something that does you no good in the long run. What good does pride in your youth do you? You get old and it goes away we see it slipping away and we fear 30 and we fear 40 and we fear 50 and we fear 60 and we don't remember 80. It goes away. Everything down here is temporary. And if it's temporary it's no good forever. It has no eternal value. But We burned incidents to vanity. We have our American pride, don't we? We have state pride. We have family pride. We have sports pride. We have any part of life you want to name, we have pride and vanity in it. Pride in physical strength, pride in physical beauty. Trying to look as beautiful as we can or as strong as we can, depending on whether we're boys or girls, I guess. But it's all vanity and we spend our time and our energy trying to be something here on this physical earth, and it won't last. We forget God, and we put other things ahead of him. They've caused them to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths, to walk in paths in a way not built or cast up, or a road, a highway. In other words, we got off the track, got off the road, got off the highway, got off the track, whatever you want to call it. The ancient paths are the ones defined by God in the Bible. We've been going through Deuteronomy on New Moon night. Those are the paths God instructed Israel to walk in to begin with. They departed and went into captivity. Now we have the whole Bible, which says the same thing over and over and over again, from Genesis to Revelation, and we've departed from it. And we're not walking in the right paths. Didn't Christ say walk as he walked? 1 John 2.6 To walk as Christ walked. To walk in the same paths. He, he's provided a highway. He's provided a road. How do you make a road? You you take a grader, modernly and you heap the dirt up into a higher place. You flatten it out so that driving or walking is easy. You make a sidewalk or a highway, a place to walk that is easier. God has made a way for us to walk. But somehow, we sort of like to get out in the tules. We don't want to stay on the path. So we stumble along. You're out in the dark. You don't have a path to follow. You stumble. To make their land desolate and a perpetual hissing, everyone that passes thereby shall be astonished and wag his head. That's what they do of the church today. If they know about it, they wag their heads and laugh at us. And pretty soon, all the nations of the world will wag their heads and laugh at America and all of Israel. Not just America, but all Israel, because we will be destroyed. And they'll laugh. And they'll laugh at us being slaves. We laughed at those peasants in China and India working for a few cents an hour. We'll be working and not being paid a few cents an hour. Given just enough food to keep us working as slaves. That's where Americans will be. And everyone will laugh at those Americans who were slaves, who were so high and mighty. Our vanity or pride will pass away will be laughing stock. I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. It's what God has been doing with the church. He showed us his back and not his face. He's turned his face from us. And he's going to do the very same thing with our physical peoples. Then said they, come and let us devise devices against Jeremiah. Let's kill the messenger." You know, if someone tells us evil is coming, let's get rid of him. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophets. Our preachers are telling us, okay, those, those words aren't going to perish. Yes, they are. Anyone who will tell you, peace, peace, and everything's going to be fine, and if you're here, everything will be rosy, and you'll go to a place of safety and enter the kingdom of God, if that is being preached... Those words will go away. God will destroy them. So they said, Come and let us smite him with the tongue and let us not give heed to any of his words. Let's talk about it. Let's talk behind his back. We'll smite him with the tongue. Give heed to me, O Lord, and hearken to the voice of them that contend with me. Listen to what... People are saying, Jeremiah says, they're trying to destroy me with their tongues. Shall evil be recompensed for good? For they have digged a pit for my soul. Remember that I stood before you to speak good for them and to turn away your wrath from them. So I prayed for these people. I have tried to tell, talk to them. I have tried to straighten them out. And now they're talking against me. Therefore deliver up their children to the famine, and pour out their blood by the force of the sword, and let their wives be bereaved of their children, and be widows. And let their men be put to death, and let their young men be slain by the sword in battle. In other words, Jeremiah says, it isn't any really good to talk to them. It isn't any really good to preach, so I'm blue in the face. They will not listen. They will not change. Go ahead and do this thing, God. Destroy them. I don't think that was a bad attitude on Jeremiah's part. He just simply came to the point that he said, you said you're going to do it, just get it done. He was tired of it. Tired of putting up with it. Let a cry be heard from their houses when you shall bring a troop or an army suddenly upon them. Again it says suddenly, in a moment, quickly. For they have digged a pit to take me and hid snares for my feet. Yet, eternal, you know all their counsel against me to slay me. Forgive not their iniquity, neither blot out their sin from your sight, but let them be overthrown before you. Deal thus with them in the time of your anger. Well, Jeremiah just consigns it to God and says, You've said this is going to happen. I preached, I preached, I preached, it does no good, they don't change, go ahead, let it happen. We're very close to that point. We're already there in the church, and we're there very, very close to it in the nation. won't be long until it falls. Well, I'm going to quit now. We didn't have sermonette and so on, and this is a good place to stop something, leave something for us to think about. I think a little bit, but there comes a time where Jeremiah throws up his hands and says, "Go ahead with it," and where God says, "All right, I'm going to go ahead with it," and it's going to happen. And It's going to come very suddenly. How much time do you and I have to heed God's Jeremiah's words? I do not know. A friend of mine doesn't have any time. He died this last week very tragically. could happen to any one of us, anytime, anywhere. And it'd be snuffed out. But this other thing is inevitable. It is coming. We've seen it happening in the church, and that should tell us it isn't far off for the nation as well. I don't know how much time we have, but Paul told us redeem the time. Use the time. Don't let it slip away. Because suddenly you might be looking down the barrel of destruction and misery, famine, pestilence and disease if you don't redeem the time and you just let it slip through your fingers and don't make the changes you need to make. So we need to examine our deceitful, desperately wicked hearts and find out what self-righteousness, what pride, what vanity, what ego is there and get rid of that. Because those are the key things, I think, for us. We're keeping the right form with the Sabbath, the Holy Days, and we're amending that and fixing it as we see we need to be doing more. And yet it's the internal. It's the heart, as Jeremiah said earlier, that is creating the problems and the things that we bring before the altar of God that are not clean, but are not what they ought to be. We have to sort the precious from the vile, as we saw last week. So it's within our hearts and minds that the problem lies. Those we have to examine carefully and be sure we get rid of the self-righteousness, the pride, the vanity, the ego, the comparing ourselves among ourselves, and all those things that we do to make ourselves think that we are okay. A Laodicean thinks he's okay. We're not okay. We have an awful lot to change, and I don't know how much time we have to change it, but it can slip away. I don't know what happened to my life. Just yesterday, it seemed like I was a teenager. Suddenly I'm an old man. People admit that, but truth is truth. That's just the way it happens, and it happens so quickly. Where did it go? Well, this thing's going to happen quickly, too. I hope we're not among those who say, saying, what happened, where did it go, and find it on top of us. We can't afford that. So let's think deeply and carefully and find where our hearts are deceitful, where they are wicked, and change our attitudes.